Let's take our Bibles and open them to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39, as we move into uh, week three of this series uh, called But God Meant It for Good, as we are uh, examining uh, the life of Joseph and learning some things about uh, enduring in seasons of trial. And so as you're finding Genesis 39, just a a little bit of review about where we've been in the first couple of weeks. In the first week, we looked at some basic biblical truths about suffering uh, to sort of create a framework, if you will, as for us to engage the rest of this text. Some, some things that are true about suffering. We talked about the fact that, uh, that not all suffering is punitive, but all suffering is purposeful. And we talked about uh, the ways that God works in and through suffering. And then last week, we spend our time focusing on some promises that we have as New Testament followers of Jesus, uh, particularly uh, that we can hold to when we're dealing with times of trial and difficulty, uh, the reality of God's presence and the, the, uh, the, the purposefulness that he has uh, for us uh, in trial, uh, that God is at work to make us more like Christ and that he is with us and that he never leaves us or forsakes us. And so some things that can bring some encouragement, we want to continue in that line today as we look at uh, Joseph in just simply one chapter, but it's right in the middle or sort of on the, actually the beginning side of the middle of Joseph's trial. And we talked about the fact that uh, in one of the previous weeks that it takes about 22 minutes at a reasonable pace to read Genesis 37 through the end of the chapter, end of the book. And from Genesis chapter 37 to about chapter 45, 46, where they're two years into the famine, takes about 22 years to occur. And that suffering and trial and seasons of suffering and trial often seem to move rather slowly. And so how do we endure in the, the slow days of suffering? And well, there's some things that we can learn from Joseph, but before we <clears throat> dive into chapter 39, I want us to be reminded that Joseph is not the main character of this text. He's not the main character of his own narrative. He's not the main character of chapter 39. Neither is Potiphar or his wife or Pharaoh or any of the, the other prisoners in the jail or the other servants in the house. None of those people are the main character of chapter 39 or the larger context of 37 through the end of the chapter or of the book, but rather God is the main character of his story. And so when we're dealing with a, a, a narrative portion of the scripture, particularly in four or five weeks at a time, we may be tempted to, to sort of drift into focusing more on the individuals in the book or in the, the narrative portion instead of focusing on the God of his book. Because the Bible is God's revelation of himself to us. He gives it to us, not so that we can learn more about Joseph, but so that we can learn more about him through the way he works in and through Joseph's life. And so I want us to sort of press ourselves there a little bit. If we're, if we're drifting more to focusing on Joseph instead of focusing on God, I want us to sort of pump the brakes on that and refocus, recenter ourselves as we read through this text this morning to think what are the things that we see about God that we can learn from this text. And so some questions uh, that can sort of help us recalibrate if we happen to be drifting towards more one of the uh, characters in the text instead of the main character of the text. 
Questions like this can help us refocus, asking ourselves, what do I learn about God from this text? And now, I've mentioned that question twice, and one of the ways that we learn from a text is seeing what is repeated in the text. And you're going to see one phrase repeated four times in chapter 37 that gives us some indication about who God is. And I would encourage us to mark that in some way or list that because it gives us some insight into who God is. And the second question, how is God's character or his holiness or his power or his glory on display in and through this text in the life of Joseph? So what do I learn about God from a particular text? How is God's character, holiness, power, or glory on display in this text? And then the third question is, how or where does this particular chapter of the Bible fit in the larger context of the book, but also in the larger context of God's redemptive history in the world? So not just what do we learn about God from Joseph's life, but where does it fit in the larger picture of God working to reconcile all things unto himself? Because that, those questions will help us understand more about the nature of the text that is to reveal God to us, to reveal his work to us, to reveal his character to us. And so in that, that we can see his glory and glorify him as we learn about him. So before we dive into this chapter, let's think through those questions. Now, chapter 39 does have some context that we need to deal with. It's just what's going on in the chapter, what's going on prior to it, what's coming after it. Who are the, the, the players that, that are in chapter 39? Obviously, God is the main character. There are other people here that we see with some activity. And if you remember, back in the first part of the series, we got Joseph out of his home country, sold into slavery by his brothers, and they were sending him with some slave traders on their way to Egypt. And now this is where we come to in chapter 39. And I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter. Then we'll go back and walk through some principles that we can glean from it. And now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph. And so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And now his master saw that the Lord was with him. Remember, we learn about God's character often from repetitive phrases. Well, here in two verses, we see that what? The Lord is with him. We should take note of that. This chapter is going to be bookended with that truth. And so now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. And so Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned he put in his charge. And it came about that from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. And now Joseph was handsome in form and in appearance. And it came about that after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. 
But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And it came about that as she spoke to Joseph day after day, that he did not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. And now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household were there inside. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And, she, and he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. And when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand he had, and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to make sport of us. He came in to lie with me, and I screamed. And it came about that when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, that he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. And then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me, and it happened as I raised my voice and screamed that he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now when it came about that his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, that his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. And the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. It's a bit repetitive, isn't it? Purposeful. And the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. So we see this chapter is bookended with this truth, this grand reminder that regardless of the circumstance, the Lord was with Joseph. Now, you see there's some ebb and flow in this text because he's brought to Egypt as a prisoner and, or as a slave and is purchased and put into this home and, and the Lord blesses him and gives him favor and the, his owner recognizes it and puts him in charge. And it seems like things are going really great except for the fact that if you're the favorite prisoner, or excuse me, the favorite servant in a home, you're still a servant. So in this text so far, he's gone from being the favored son at his father's table to being alone in a pit. And now while he is the favored servant, he's still a slave. And in that context, things are going pretty well until they're not. And then when they're not, they really don't. Falsely accused, thrown into prison. But there he becomes the favorite prisoner. But if you're the favorite prisoner in prison, you're still in prison. So while the Lord is with him and is giving him favor and is causing him to prosper in what he does, the reality is, is he's still not at home. He's still not at his father's table. He's still separated and isolated from his family. He no longer wears a coat that is a sign of his favor in his father's house, but now he wears rags as a prisoner. But the Lord is with him. Here's the over, overarching truth. We talked about that last week, God's promise of his presence. That in the Holy Spirit, he's not only with us, he is 
in us. We talked about that. Jesus told his disciples, it's to your benefit that I go away because if I don't go away, then the helper won't come. But when the helper comes, he'll remind you of everything that I said. And he will not only be with you, but he will be in you. So the, the overarching principle that we see here throughout this whole text is that in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trial, God is present and he is at work. He is at work. He is with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. And so what do we see about God? What do we see about his character? We see that he is present and that he is faithful and ultimately that he is sovereign. And so as we think in and through those principles, those characteristics of God, there are some things that we can draw from this text about ways that we can strive to, to honor God in the days of our slow days of trial and suffering. And, the, and, and let me just tell you, I don't like blanks two and three. Now, I realize how ironic and odd that is since I wrote blanks two and three. But I didn't like them when I submitted them, and I continued to not like them from the time of submission until the bulletin was printed and the PowerPoint was made. And, and I, I asked the 830 service, and they were no help at all. But between 8.30 and driving to Hickson, it finally clicked to me how we can make blanks two and three better. Because if you read them as they are, it looks like we're simply looking at surface level, temporal level thoughts and realities. And that's not what I want us to see. So I need you to add two words to the end of blanks two and three. Just after that blank, write the words by others. And now it all makes sense. And if I had thought about that about Wednesday, then we'd be avoiding this whole thing right now. But I want us to look at what Joseph is doing in the midst of God's faithfulness in this text. We've got no reason to believe that at any point from Genesis chapter 37 up to this point, that Joseph's motivation and behavior were, were anything but right. What started the problems with his brothers, other than he was the favorite and his father didn't mind letting folks know he was the favorite, but it started with, you go back and remember, that he had gone out to check on his brothers and he brought back a bad report. And this says they hated him for it. But the more we get to know his brothers, the bad report seems reasonable because they seem like awful people. It was probably well-earned. There's no reason for us to think from the text that he fabricated any of it. Brought back a bad report and they hated him. And then if you remember, they hated him, and then later on they hated him even more, and then after that they hated him even more. They really, really hated him. But he was just trying to do the right thing. Go bring a report, brought back a report. Comes to Potiphar's house, he's just doing his thing. God adds blessing to it. Drop down after the wheels come off, he's in prison, the Lord adds blessing to it. And so sometimes doing the right thing is rewarded by others. See, that's why I wanted to add the by others because it just undid it without that. Sometimes doing the right thing is rewarded by others. See, I didn't want us to equate the doing the right thing equal the reward because God's sovereignty equaled the, pro the prospering here. God added the sovereignty. God added the prospering. Go back and look in verse 3, that even Potiphar noticed that God was adding 
prosperity to Joseph. It wasn't that Joseph was so administratively skilled and so this and so that and so the other. It proves later on that he's got some insight to that, but we've got to believe that God was bringing that to him as he was moving through these trials. None of this text is meant to glorify Joseph. It's all meant for us to see God's glory. But the reality is that sometimes doing the right things will be rewarded by others, sometimes. But when we get down to the middle part of this text, we're reminded that sometimes doing the right things is rejected by others. Verse 9. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce and entice Joseph. And his response is, how could I do this evil thing and sin against God? There was a word that at least three different commentators that I looked at used that was the word absurd. For Joseph, it would have been absurd for him to rebel against his master, but ultimately to sin against God. What you're asking me to do is absurd. And he's consistent in his rejection of her advance day after day after day after day. So it's not just a one-time moment of strength. It seems to be an expression of his intent for his motivation and his behavior to be right before the Lord. And it makes sense for us when A is good motivation and B is right behavior, C equals comfort. That makes sense to us. But when A, right motivation, plus B, right behavior, equals purple, and we end up in prison, that doesn't make sense to us. Because there's sometimes when we functionally have this understanding about God that if I have the right motive and have the right behavior, then therefore, and I want to be careful with this, because even though we would not articulate it, sometimes we feel it. Right motivation, right behavior, equals C, which means God is now obligated to give me comfort. I've had the right motive, I've done the right thing, therefore, God, you owe me. And if we ever use the phrase, God, you owe me, we need to pump the brakes hard on that. Hard. Because God owes us only what he's promised us, and the only reason he owes that is because he obligated himself because he can't go against himself. So it's not a matter of owing, it's a matter of God being faithful to his character. God owes us nothing, but by his grace, showers us with love and acceptance and grace and mercy and loving kindness, forgiveness. But functionally, I believe, and I believe it because I've been living in this world for 50 years and and talked with people. Functionally, very often, we believe that if I've got the right motivation, right behavior, then therefore, then God owes it to me for things to always work out well for me. And if that doesn't happen, then we are tempted to think one of two things, and both of those things are in error, that either God is actually and ultimately not good, or he's not capable of giving me these good things, or he's not willing, and therefore he's just mean and awful, and so he's not willing to give me these good things, or I must have been somewhere wrong in this process, and my motivation or my behavior really weren't good, and so God doesn't want to give me anything because nobody loves me, everybody hates me, I guess I'll go eat worms. 
And none of that seems to be the case at any place in this or any other place in the text. We've got reason to believe that in chapter 39, Joseph's motivation was proper. He wanted to honor God. He didn't want to sin against God. His behavior was right. And so he rejected the idea and did not engage in what she wanted him to. And so it ended up rightfully and naturally we would reason to think that he would end up in prison, which is exactly what happened. And when A plus B equals purple, sometimes our faith gets derailed. Which is why we've got to come back to the text and say, what do we know that the Bible says about God? That he is good. That he is sovereign. That our suffering exists under his sovereign care. That our suffering exists in the context of his goodness of his mercy, of his loving kindness, of his being slow to anger and quick to forgive. All the places that the scripture declares these characteristics about God, those characteristics in our understanding of God from the text create the grid through which we understand our suffering and our trial and our difficulty. Because if we let our understanding of God be shaped by our circumstances or by our emotions, God will be very shifting. Because if we're receiving good, then God must be good. And if we're receiving bad, then God must be bad. Or, maybe, just maybe, God's got a bigger plan. And my suffering is part of it. And that he is good. And that he is faithful. And he is present. And he's not abandoned me. And it is purposeful. And God is at work. Because we can push pause in Genesis 39 and jump all the way to the end and see where it all worked out. We can see the end of Joseph's narrative where his suffering isn't over in Genesis chapter 39. It's going to get worse in chapter 40. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. But we can read to the end of the chapter and see how things got better and how God wrapped up all those loose ends and put a bow on it and he was second in charge of the nation and, and saved not only his family but other thousands and multitudes of people through his ability to organize and administrate and all those things God allowed him to do. We see how all that fits and we go, oh, well, it makes perfect sense then for, for him to be put in prison because that's where he's going to meet the baker and that's where he's going to meet the cupbearer and that's how he's going to get in front of Pharaoh and of course it all makes sense. Our struggle comes when we're living in our own chapter 39 and we don't yet see chapter 50 in our life. And all we see is the struggle. And all we see is the trial. And all we see is the difficulty. But when Joseph was in chapter 39, he didn't read chapter 50 yet either. So in the midst of our trial... We live in this present reality that at all times in our suffering, we strive to be God-honoring. Verse 9, it was absurd for Joseph to think about, even in the midst of his trial, to think about sinning against God. It was absurd. The idea was unfathomable to him. And so 
in the midst of his suffering, he still desired to please God, to honor God, to do his work under God's care and under God's control. And the other side of that coin is that in all times we remember that our suffering and our trial is under God's sovereignty, which is where we come back to the text and see the first two times and then the last two times. In the midst of Potiphar's house, the Lord was with him. Then as he's moved to prison, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. We lean hard on the promises of God's presence and God's sovereignty. Because while it may not make our immediate circumstances better, and it may not bring our view of God's ultimate purpose in our life with great specificity, but we can live under the truth that in the midst of our trial, God is sovereign, God is present, God is at work, and he is ultimately working for his glory and for my good. At all times, my suffering, my trial is under God's sovereign hand. And my discomfort does not shape the character of God. But rather, God's character helps me understand the purpose in my suffering. God is good. God is faithful. God is just. God is filled with loving kindness. He is slow to anger and he's quick to forgive. He is present. He weeps with the brokenhearted. And when we understand our trial in the context of God's character and God's sovereignty, we can say with the psalmist that it was good that I was afflicted. He doesn't say it was pleasant. It was good. So what do we do with that? How do we conclude this? Three things I want to encourage us in because through this whole series, this is the goal of this series is that God's people, regardless of where we are in either dealing with trial, either we're before it, we're dealing with it, or we're after it. That's sort of the nature of living in a broken world. Wherever we are, I want us to be encouraged by the character and the sovereignty of God. That is the overarching theme and purpose of this series, that we will be encouraged by the character and the sovereignty of God. And the second part of that is that we will also be encouraged to be engaged with God's people. So as we think about trial and suffering and God's character and God's sovereignty. Here's, what, here's how I want us to, to do this. I want to invite us to three things. First of all, in our midst of our trial, to rest in God. To rest in Him. To rest in His character. To rest in His sovereign care. To stop striving and rest in Him. 
And I've told you before, I've gotten very comfortable in praying, Lord, you and I both know. I think that's a great way to rest. Lord, you and I both know, I don't enjoy this. This season is hard. You and I both know that I'm tired. You and I both know this is not pleasant. But I also know that you're good and that you're sovereign and that you are filled with loving kindness and that you are slow to anger and quick to forgive. And so I rest in you. Secondly, to trust in his work. To trust in his work. God is at work to bring glory to himself to bring people to himself, to bring the nations to himself. And so your trial is purposeful. It may be to bring, that God is working to bring glory in and through you or you are part of the bigger story in a different way, but God is at work. And while we live in, in our own chapter 39, we live in the hope that chapter 50 is going to happen. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to be second in charge of the nation. That's not what I mean. But that this light and temporary trial will turn out for our good. So rest in him. Trust in his work. And third, engage with God's people. Enjoy the benefit of being the church. Because we've been talking about groups. You've seen the videos. You've seen the opportunities to, to engage with other people in a variety of, of groups because we want to create environments where we build depth of relationship with God and with each other so that none of us endure trial alone because that's one of the tools of the adversary. When we encounter trials, he wants us to feel isolated from God and isolated from one another. But when Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Then he said, the second one is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And we're given instruction in the New Testament that we love one another, that we fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. That's part of what it is to be community. That when one of us have trial or one of us is suffering or one of us is hurting, that we don't do that alone, but we do that in the context of community where there are other people who can help bear our burdens. I've got a, a beautiful picture of this, and my kids love it when I do this. But I've got two pictures in mind of what I think of when I think of bearing one another's burdens, and it happened with my two older sons. I've been to Honduras four times with our church. And each time I take one of my children with me. And three years ago, Campbell uh, went with me to Honduras. And some of you know who Campbell is. He plays bass sometimes. Leslie's played today. But sometimes, sometimes Campbell stands right there. And we were wrapping up work for the day. And there was a little boy who had been there at our work site that, that lived in the community. And he'd been helping us all week. And we were loading a cooler onto the bus to head back to the compound for the day. And this cooler was just your standard picnic cooler. But the little boy was trying diligently to pick it up. And, and the harder he tried, the heavier it was. And he just couldn't get it. And he was trying. And so Campbell just walked over and picked up one side of the handle. And off they went to the bus. And so I thought, oh, i got to take a picture of that. So I took a picture. And all the people said what? Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, oh, perfect, perfect picture. Fast forward three years, two months ago, 
Graham, you stand right there. There was a little girl trying to pick up a cooler. Uh, it could have been the same cooler, I don't know. Trying to pick it up, she just couldn't get it, and it was going to be too heavy, and so Graham went over, picked up the same side, picked up one side, and off they went, and I took a picture of that. So I've got these two pictures of brothers three years apart. It might have been carrying the same cooler with a different kid on the other end. I don't know what was in the cooler. Some of you are like, I wonder what was in that cooler that made it so heavy. It doesn't matter. We could have put bricks in there. I don't know. But notice, I wasn't carrying either side of the cooler because I've got sons. I don't carry heavy things anymore. But this, this person was struggling to pick up a load that there was no way they were going to carry it by themselves. They might have drug it it would have taken forever. They would have been exhausted. It would have been difficult until somebody came alongside and picked up part and they carried it together. There are some of us who would rather drag that cooler for a day than ask for help for five minutes. I don't know if it's pride, I don't know if it's shame. I don't know if it's expectation. Whatever your reason for wanting to carry your own cooler is. But we were not designed to live in isolation from one another. Dependence on one another. Enjoying the blessing of being the family of God. Enjoying the blessing of being the church. Bearing one another's burdens and thus fulfilling the law of Christ that kind of dependence is not weakness. It is by divine design. It's not weak. It's necessary. Because there are some people here today, I would guess, who you carried a very heavy cooler in today. And you have every expectation of carrying it home. And nobody knowing not asking for help. I'm not saying that we have to all have to carry it, but maybe one other person could help. Maybe one other person has been through something similar like what you're going through now and have some insight into how to carry that cooler a little better. Rest in him. Trust in his work. And may we engage with one another in a way to love each other well, to bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ in these slow days of suffering. Because while you may be carrying a very heavy burden today, someone else may have come today in a season of ease where they've got an extra hand. But this requires that we be authentic with one another. And real with one another. And entrust part of our lives to each other. And honestly, that can be terrifying. If we let it. Or it can be very freeing. If we'll engage it. So I want to invite you to pray with me this morning and as we pray, I just want you to think about those three invitations to rest in him, to trust in his work, and to engage with each other. And if you're here this morning carrying some sort of trial, 
I want you to know that you are loved by him, that you are loved by us. And the way that God puts his people together is that there are people here who can help you carry the burden that you carry. And I can promise you, nobody's trying to shame you. Nobody's trying to embarrass you. Nobody's trying to to put things on broad display and have a, a public conversation or put things in social media. None of that. We just as a church family want to love each other well. Because you may be suffering, but you need not suffer alone. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for the promise of the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the reality that you are at work in this world to ultimately reconcile all things to yourself as you tell us in your word. You're working to make us more like Jesus. Thank you for your unchanging character that you are who you are forever and always. That we can trust you, that we can rest in you. Thank you that because your character is trustworthy, so therefore are your works, that we can trust your work, that it is good, that it is right, and that you are sovereign over all of it. And we thank you for giving us the gift of the church. Lord, may we be your people in the way that you've designed us to be. Lord, will you create a fellowship in your people at Stuart Heights that loves well, that cares well? Will you continue to do the work that you've started here? And Lord, help us to be willing to bear one another's burdens. And just like those pictures, to pick up the other end of a burden and help carry it. And we thank you for it. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray together. Amen and amen.